Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Dean. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. Welcome for May 13th, 2015. I will uh, get us started fairly quickly so that um, uh, Michelle can have full time and we can also hopefully then move en masse up to the fifth floor for our annual faculty and house staff uh, photograph uh, in a timely way, hopefully slightly before nine so we can take a good picture. But I do want to remind us that we have Grand Rounds next week as well, uh, nationally and internationally renowned uh, Dr. Alan Shore from the University of uh, UCLA and David Geffen School of Medicine will be visiting and uh, joining a lot of us in the community to discuss the interpersonal neurobiological origins of emotional well-being and health. Uh, but today we have uh, Dr. Liliana Michelle Gomez-Mendez, who is a graduating resident from uh, Chad's Pediatric Residency, who joined us here in 2012 after medical school at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine and her undergraduate degree in biological anthropology from uh, Harvard College where she was a Howard Hughes Medical Institute Research Grant recipient already engaged in research. Uh, like some of the others in this class, um, uh, Michelle has been a, a quietly effective um, and, and um, increasingly excellent resident who um, doesn't necessarily toot her own horn effectively or extensively, but uh, I was impressed at the recent PAS meetings. I went around, as some of you may or may not have seen, I have not that many followers. I was tweeting photos of folks at their posters, and I couldn't get to the poster that Michelle was presenting on factors associated with risk for chronic kidney disease and follow-up of premature neonates with Kate Sullivan, one of our fellows, because it was always too crowded with actual visitors, including one from Nationwide Children's Hospital who was ruining, lamenting the loss of uh, Michelle to UCSF, where she will be starting her fellowship in pediatric nephrology, uh, I imagine, this summer. So uh, as I said, we'll get things started. So Michelle has a full time. Welcome. Thanks, Dr. Love, for that introduction. Can everybody hear me? Okay. <laughs> um, so I am, as we said, Michelle Gomez, um, and this is my talk, If the Sun Does Not Rise, Medicine in Aztec Times. And my objectives for this talk is mainly to provide a historical and geographical background on the Aztecs, um, discuss the Aztecs and their very peculiar worldview and how this affected their health. Um, and then I'm going to change gears and talk about childhood in Aztec Times and what it was like to be a kid. And I'm going to try to wrap this up with some lessons that I learned along the way. Um, so all of you may be asking right now, why the Aztecs? Um, well, I am, and sorry to start with a very dramatic image, but uh, I am Mexican, and growing up in Mexico City, it's part of my history, it's part of my culture. I've always found them incredibly fascinating. Um, they were incredibly complex society, and even um, modern for the standards of the time for the Spanish Renaissance. Uh, but they had a very dark secret, well, maybe not so much of a secret, um, that they practiced human sacrifice, which is not true of other equally civilized uh, states of the time. So I thought I would just try to reconcile this and see what I could learn about this. Um, so I'm going to start just by locating the place that I will be talking about for the next hour or so. Uh, so the first image to your right, this is Lake Texcoco. This is an aerial view. 
Uh, this lake does not exist anymore. It is roughly shaped like a duck. Um, and this is where the Aztecs settled. So they were actually uh, latecomers to the game. They settled in the 1300s, where there have been thousands of years of people already settling there, and some many different cultures that were already thriving. Um, so as you can see, the prime real estate would be next to the coast of Mexico, where there's lots of, there's lots of it, but all of that space was taken. Um, so they basically had to etch their way in, and they ended up somewhere in the middle of the country in this lake. So the picture to your left, uh, up to your left, uh, that is just a map of Mexico. Uh, the brown part is the empire of the Aztecs at its height and uh, all the locations that they governed. The picture below that, um, that orange blob in the middle, that's where the Aztecs actually were. And somewhere in that middle of that blob is a Lake Texcoco to your right. The rest of it is just the tributary states and all the states that they had control over. And so how do we know about the Aztecs? So the Aztecs had a um, form of writing, which was very complex. Uh, and they wrote about a lot of things, but they really only wrote about the things that they thought were important, uh, which was uh, the empire, the kings, the gods, um, historical events. They didn't really write about the day-to-day -day life because they didn't really need to. They lived their day-to-day -day lives. It wasn't really important for them to write about it. So the first ever things that we get about what it was like to be an Aztec is actually from the Spanish. Uh, when they came to Mexico and started writing about what they saw um, all the Aztecs do. So this is one of our primary sources. Um, this is Friar Bernardino de Sagún. And right after um, Mex uh, the Aztecs surrendered to the Spanish and they started bringing a lot of people over, uh, they brought the Catholic Church with them with the purpose of making the Aztecs more Christian and making them more Spanish and less Aztec. Um, and this was, Bernardino Segun was one of the first people to ever come to Mexico. He was a Franciscan missionary, and he did convert a lot of Aztecs, and he did try to Christianize them and make them Spanish. Uh, but at the same time, he was actually, uh, he admired the Aztecs very much and everything that he saw, and so he sat down and tried to write as much as he could on their way of life, their customs, their traditions, basically everything that he could about them. So he wrote this book titled The General History of the Things of New Spain, uh, which is also lovely, uh, with lovely illustrations. And so he's one of the first sources that we have. A second source, uh, this is Bernal Diaz del Castillo. He's actually a soldier, and he came to America to make his fortune. Uh, and he was one of the first people to enter the continent uh, with uh, Hernán Cortés, the eventual conqueror of Mexico. And he also... Um, was very interested in all the things that he was seeing, so he kept a journal of everything that was happening, the people that he talked to, the things that he saw, uh, and he ended up writing um, this book entitled The True History of the Conquest of the New Spain, in which not only does he tell the story of how they conquered uh, America, but also of all the customs and everything that he could about the Aztecs. And so this is an image from his book, and what it's actually depicting is how they first entered from the coast all the way, uh, had to cross the mountain ranges to get to Lake Texcoco to your left and uh, finally meet the Aztecs. And so that's there. <laughs> so when we think about Mexico, it's, it's very hard to picture what it was like for the Aztecs before the Europeans actually got there. What we're actually thinking about is about the mix of these two cultures. <clears throat> But there's actually some very important differences between what it was in the New World um, versus what it was like in the Old World in Europe. 
So I don't know if any of you remember this cartoon uh, from Hanna-Barbera. Um, and that's uh, the little donkey, the little, me what, what could be more Mexican than a little donkey with a thick accent wearing a sombrero, <laughs> right? It didn't, it didn't translate very well into Spanish, right? I will say that. Um, but actually, there were no donkeys in Mexico. They were brought by the Spanish. Um, this is another image of a donkey in modern-day Mexico carrying around um, firewood. But there were no animals that could be domesticated by the Aztecs. Um, so what did that mean? Uh, first of all, so there were no sheep, there were no cows, there were no goats. That meant that there was no dairy, uh, which if you think about it, it's a very important source of protein and a very important source of fat for people. It's very, it's very nutritious. That also means that they didn't have any animals to help them carry anything around. So if they wanted to bring stone from point A to point B, they had to pick up said stone and carry it all the way. Um, if they lived by the coast, people were, they were great sailors and they used boats to transport things everywhere. But as we saw, the Aztecs were actually pretty landlocked. Uh, and other than taking um, something from one side of the lake to the other, they, they really, if they wanted to do anything, they had to carry it themselves. This also means that if they wanted to go anywhere, they had to walk themselves. Um, again, they didn't live by the coast, so using boats was not a, a very good way of, tra of transporting themselves. And so this is the Grand Temple. This is the largest temple and most uh, beautiful temple that the Aztecs ever built. This is as, as it stands today in Mexico City. Um, to your right, you can even see the cathedral behind the ruins of the temple. To your left, you can see the serpent god. And this is, um, this is the Grand Temple, a sketch of the Grand Temple as we think it stood the day that the, uh, when the Spanish came to Mexico. Uh, and this is just to drive the point that all of this had to be built without the help of animals. There was somebody carrying, physically carrying every single one of these stones um, and carving and doing everything on their own. And so this is just to make the point that the Aztecs were very much used to hard labor. There were people that worked very, very hard. So a few other differences. Um, so again, so since they didn't have many animals that could be domesticated, it could be easily used for food. This means that most of their diet uh, was plant-based, and they had no dairy, so they were basically vegan. This is not true of the higher classes. This is not true of the aristocrats. Uh, there were certain things that could be eaten. Um, I have an image of turkeys. Turkeys are native to the Americas. Uh, there were also dogs. We know that they ate insects whenever they could. Um, and fish, which was not very readily available to them because they were not from the coast. So what this means is that they built all of these beautiful pyramids and all of these beautiful cities on basically a diet based on plants, which is not as energetic as a diet based on animals. Uh, we also know that they were master farmers and agriculturers. Uh, they basically settled in the land that nobody else wanted because they didn't really think that it was that fertile. Uh, and yet they grew all sorts of uh, different plants uh, for food. And as I said before that the Aztecs didn't write about their day-to-day -day life, one thing that they wrote a lot about was famine and how hard it was for them because whenever there was bad weather, uh, that would mean that a lot of people would be unable to eat. <laughs> Another big difference between Europeans of the 16th century and the Aztecs um, was that the Aztecs were very much dedicated to cleanliness. Um, they were always bathing and always having ablutions. A lot of their rituals and their prayers involved cleaning themselves. Uh, there were numerous bathhouses all over the city that people could go to and just clean themselves. Uh, and they were also very committed to cleaning their streets and cleaning their city. So there were people constantly sweeping the streets and keeping everything clean. 
Um, and this is something that the Spanish were very much impressed when they came to America. They were impressed that the city was so clean. As you can imagine, 16th century Spain looked nothing like that. They were also very careful with human waste, and there would be no human waste in living areas, which made it very inconvenient for people, but also made it a little bit more hygienic um, for the city. And finally, another big difference between the Spanish of the time and the Aztecs is that the Aztecs cremated their dead. Uh, this is not 100% true, because we do have some skeletal remains in which we can prove that they had mostly a plant-based diet, and also that they did live a life of hard labor, because even younger skeletons that are uh, thought to be 20 or 30 years old show some arthritic changes, so we know that um, this was a very tough life for them. So now I'm going to change gears a little bit and talk about how they saw their place in the universe and what disease meant for them. So this person here is my Aztec priest. Uh, he's wearing a headdress. Um, the red line there is his diaphragm that would be representing his diaphragm. And for the Aztecs, they actually thought that the human organs were made out of particles uh, from the universe, basically. So they literally thought that their brain was made out of heaven. They literally thought that their heart was made out of sun. So if you could travel to the sun, it would look like an enormous heart. Um, they thought that their liver was made out of moon, and they thought that their intestines were made out of ground and dirt. Um, unfortunately, the Aztecs didn't take very much attention to their kidneys. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> so the Aztecs had a very large pantheon of gods, and the gods were the ones primarily responsible for disease. Uh, they inflicted this upon people because people had been, uh, they were trying to punish them, or they were not worshipping, or they weren't being good. Uh, but sometimes it was just because they were bored, and they had nothing better to do. So a little bit more like the Greek and, and, and Roman gods. So this is just an example of some of their more important gods and the type of diseases that were attributed to them. Um, so to, the first one to your left is Tlaloc. He's the god of rain and thunder. Uh, he would be the equivalent of the Norse god Thor. And so obviously things like death by drowning or death by lightning strike, those sorts of things were attributed to him. But also anything that seemed like there was too much fluid or too much water in the body, the people who had edema, who had swelling, who had ascites, all of these things um, were thought to be caused by the god of rain. The next god to his right is Ehekato, and he's the god of wind. And he's depicted there wearing something in front of his mouth, and that's a shell. Uh, and that's how he was thought to make the wind, by blowing through the shell. And so to him um, was attributed any disease that had anything to do with impaired mobility. So joints, uh, problems with joints, contracture, arthritis, gout, uh, any, any um, what we would call maybe rheumatic diseases today. The next god to his left is Tezcatlipoca, and he's the god of destruction. And the reason he looks so creepy is because that mask is actually made of a human skull that's just decorated a little bit. <laughs> I know. So um, to him, whenever there was a disease and that uh, affected a larger part of the population, so whenever there was an epidemic, uh, this would be attributed to him. And also mental illness, so people who were crazy or mad was said to be uh, inflicted by the Skatli Boca. And finally, to you at the far end, uh, is Shipetotec, and he is the god of destruction. I'm uh, sorry, the god of resurrection. Uh, he's also known as a flayed one, and he really had no skin. So the way he's depicted is by wearing the skin of one of the victims that was sacrificed in his honor. 
And so clearly, to him uh, were attributed all the illnesses that had to do with the skin and the eye, so conjunctivitis, sores, blisters, anything of that sort. And it was thought to be because he was uh, jealous of the skin that the humans had that he, he didn't have. So the Aztecs very much believed that um, it was the heavens that, and it was gods that were giving them diseases. Uh, but, and they did do a lot of prayers that talked to the priests. They uh, had sacrifices. They, they, did all, they did all the, cosmo the appropriate cosmological things to make their health better. But they were also very, very practical people. And they truthfully tried everything that they had um, in their power to see if there was anything they could change. Uh, they really experimented with everything they, they had um, close to them. Uh, and actually, the Spanish were so impressed by the sort of things that the Aztecs were doing that uh, even the king heard about this and heard this through letters and from people coming back from the Americas. Uh, so this is King Philip II of Spain, after the Philippines are named after him. Uh, and he, he wanted to find out what, what it was that the Aztecs were doing. So he sent um, his physician, his personal physician, Francisco Hernandez, to the Americas to try to compile as much information as he could on what the Aztecs were doing. So off he goes to the Americas in 1571. <laughs> And he spent three years there. And what he came back with were these four volumes um, that he titled uh, Four Books on the Nature and Virtues of Plants and Animals for Medicinal Purposes in the New Spain. Uh, and when he, what he talked about in these books is that the Aztecs didn't only have uh, all of these fields where they were planting uh, things that they were going to eat or they were going to use to you know, make clothes and textiles. Uh, they also had what he called botanical gardens where they were just growing plants that they were trying to experiment on and see if they could help with any illnesses or diseases. Um, or already the plants that they already knew were helpful and they were just growing them um, for whenever they were needed. And so in this beautiful book that has lovely illustrations, uh, there are many, many, there are many distinct species of plants. Uh, so Francisco Hernandez was a doctor. He was not a botanist. So he sort of illustrated them and described them as best as he could. Uh, but Carl Linnaeus, the man who invented systematics in the Latin way of describing uh, plants and animals, uh, had not been born yet. He wouldn't be coming around until the 1700s. Uh, so people actually had to go back to this book and try to figure out what plants he was talking about. So this is how they came up that there were at least three thousand distinct species of plants. There were plenty more that he described, um, but the problem is that he didn't realize that he was describing the same plant two or three different times, so many of them were just duplicates. Uh, but just for academic purposes, um, some people have gone back in modern times and tried to see if the plants that he described actually do have um, any properties at all, or were they all just sort of placebo effects. So these are just, um, I have just six examples of this. Um, so the first plant to your left, um, so that's the agave. Uh, this is the agave genus of, of plants, and this plant is very famous because one species of agave, the blue agave, is where tequila comes from. <laughs> so that's why we know it. But what they actually, they did a lot of things with the agave, but one of the things that they did is they take the sap and apply it to wounds. Uh, and they thought that this had some properties to prevent it from becoming infected. And it actually does. And they think it's because the sap has such a high osmolarity that it helps lie some of the bacteria. The next plant to your right is papaya or pawpaw. Uh, and they used the seeds of the papaya, and also they macerated them and applied them to wounds. There's a trend here. They like to apply things, apply things to wounds. Uh, 
Um, so the purpose of this was to clean the wound so that it also wouldn't be, become infected, just make it heal properly. <coughs> and so we know that papaya actually has the seeds of papase, which is a proteolytic. Uh, so that part at least is true. And this is just another example. I run out of commercially important plants. Um, Salix lepis contains uh, salicylic acid, so they just juiced it whenever they felt over, overly ill. <coughs> and just a few more. Uh, the first one, Comelina pallida. Uh, this plant actually contains um, a compound similar to ergot that actually does have some vasoconstricted effects. And they also used it in wounds to try to stop bleeding. Uh, they also like to use expectorants. This is just an example of a plant that had an expectorant property for cough. And finally, the Aztecs were a big believer in laxatives. Um, they primarily used them for uh, parasites because they thought that if they gave themselves diarrhea, they would be able to dislodge the parasite. Uh, so I don't know if that part is true, uh, but there are certainly any number of plants that, were, that had a laxative property, and that's one of them. To your right. So when I was uh, doing research to try to make sure that the plants did contain the compounds that, was being, that were being described in the different articles, I came across this article about papes. Uh, so this is just one case study. There's one patient who had a diabetic foot ulcer that was just too hard to manage, uh, had a lot of overgranulation. They tried with different types of poison over and over again, uh, and nothing was helping. So they finally uh, applied some papes to the wound, and it healed, according to them, it healed within five weeks. So maybe the Aztecs weren't so crazy. So I said before that the Aztecs were latecomers to the game. They really had to fight for their territory. So they were basically a warrior nation. Um, they fought a lot, not only to keep the territory that they had, to keep the nations um, giving them tribute and, and preventing them from fighting back, but also battles were the primary way in which they obtained prisoners. And it was the prisoners of war that were sacrificed to the gods. So this went both ways. They would obtain prisoners, but also their people would become prisoners of the other nations to be sacrificed to the gods. Um, so as you can see, they, they probably had a lot of uh, wounds that pertain to battle. So they came up with a few interesting things. Um, so the Aztecs did know metals. They knew copper and they knew gold. But they didn't use them for weapons. They primarily just used them to make pretty things and make jewels and things like that. So what that they had instead for weapons was obsidian, um, which is a type of volcanic rock that can become very sharp. Uh, and so they used this for anything you can think you would use a knife for. They uh, amputated limbs, they cut parts that weren't healing, uh, they dislodged um, arrows and such. Um, they also sutured wounds, and for this they used the spine of the agave as a needle, uh, and they used human hair as thread. And they were known to reattach noses and reattach ears. Um, they also used the spines to lancet abscesses to help them heal. So as you can imagine, there were probably a lot of broken bones and people who were hard laborers and also went to battle a lot. Uh, and the Aztecs were known for setting the bones and then casting them with branches so that they would you know, just tie them really tightly with branches so that they wouldn't move anymore. They also liked to apply honey to wounds, which we know honey does have some antibacterial effects. And they used spider webs to stop bleeding which actually does work if you're ever in the wild. <laughs> so how do the Aztecs measure up to the Renaissance people of the 16th century? So this is uh, an Aztec woman to your left, and she's talking to her corn for some reason. Um, and then to the right is just a Renaissance Spanish lady. So the Aztec life expectancy was 37 years, <coughs> compared 
to the Renaissance life expectancy, which was 38 years. Maternal deaths are numbers that are incredibly hard to get, in particular for the Aztecs, because there was nobody keeping track until the Spanish came. Uh, so it is unclear if this number remained true before and after the conquest, or it became higher once the Spanish were there and things were not as hygienic and were a little bit different. Uh, but it seems like um, there were a slightly higher maternal death rate um, for the Aztecs than there were for the Europeans. And it's estimated that about a third of all males, uh, male Aztecs died in battle or as a sacrifice victim, which seems like a high <laughs> estimate to me, but it's the only one that I could find. And I know that the life expectancy surprisingly look very similar. Um, the 16th century Spain did also have a lot of things that um, went against them. This was the time of the bubonic plague, and they also had smallpox and other diseases uh, that the Aztecs didn't have. So now I'm going to change gears and talk about childhood and what it was like to be a child um, in Aztec times. So children were very precious to the Aztecs. Um, they were always, whenever described, they were always described as feathers, as jewels, as precious stones. Uh, and this was true whether there were boys or girls, uh, because there was no dowry system. There really was no downside to having a girl. So for them, either way was good. And we also know that they went through a ritual bath that was also a celebration. This was shortly after birth. So not unlike the newborn nursery, um, the Aztecs really loved washing their kids after birth. And the ritual bath is actually a very interesting example of how hard it is to look at the Aztecs and how impossible it is actually to look at them without the filter of the Spanish. Because we know they did do this ritual bath. It's depicted in many of their images. It's depicted in many of their monuments. And this is before the Spanish came. However, everybody describes it as a baptism. The Spanish, all of them describe it as a baptism. And even the Aztecs, uh, once they started writing in Spanish about it, they also described it as a baptism. And we know that that was not their intention because there was no Christianity in Aztec times. We also know about children that they also had sort of a really hard life. Uh, the, they, this was a warrior community, and they valued obedience, and they really had no uh, patience for misbehaviors. Um, so there are actually uh, lots of examples of how they punished their children, and some of them included um, putting an agave spine through their earlobes and just piercing their earlobes. Another interesting thing about the Aztecs is that they attended school, and this was true for everybody, uh, boys, girls, uh, higher classes, lower classes. It was certainly nothing like school as we think about it today, but these were places where they went to learn. And there were three different types. So the first time, the Calmecac, this was for the aristocrats, and this is where they learn how to become a governor and how to become a priest. Um, the second one, Telpochcali, this is for everybody else, uh, for the males. They went there to learn about battle and how to become soldiers. Uh, so this, they, they went there even if they weren't going to become full soldiers. So even if they had a different trade, if they're going to be farmers, if they were uh, going to be merchants, they still went to the school. So it was kind of a military service of sorts. And finally, Cuicacalco. Uh, this was the school for girls, and so this is where they learned about song and dance and, and festivals. Um, so kids had about three to four, three to five years where they just kind of hung out with their parents. Uh, but the moment they gained all their developmental milestones and they were able to do more, they were basically apprenticed um, from a very young age, from the age of four or five. And they were just made to do everything that the adults were doing. If you were a merchant, you went with your parents to um, trade things. If you... Uh, were a cook, you went with your mom and learned how to cook. 
Uh, so this is actually an image of a mother teaching her young daughter how to make tortillas. And we think that this is, uh, we speculate that the case for this is that with the high mortality rate, there weren't very many adults proportionately speaking. So they really needed children as part of the workforce uh, to actually make ends meet. Um, and finally, uh, for all practical purposes, uh, they were considered adults by age 12. They could get married, they could go to war, they could do basically whatever they wanted. And if you think about it, with the high mortality rate, if uh, parents had their children when they were 20, by the time the child was 12, it's very possible that both parents were dead. So they were pretty much it. So health during childhood. Uh, again, estimates that are hard to get, but it's thought that about 30% of children died before the age of four. Um, and this is in comparison to Europe, where 30% of children died before the age of 10. So the main causes of death of the Aztec children uh, were diarrhea, respiratory infections, fever, and inability to um, have to set breastfeeding and keep breastfeeding going. So the Aztecs very much try to keep their children to keep breastfeeding their children for as long as possible. They tried till age three, four, five until it was no longer feasible because they had another child because they ran out of milk. Uh, and the reason for this is because breast milk was really the only clean source of water that they had. And the Aztecs understood that the moment they weaned their children off breast milk and they started drinking just regular water, this is when they were at highest risk of uh, getting a diarrheal illness and dying. So they tried very hard um, to keep breastfeeding. So children were very special to the Aztecs indeed, and they were so special, they even had their own god, Ixtilton. And, he had, and the priest for this god um, had a very interesting job. So whenever a kid got sick uh, with diarrhea, uh, they would go to this, the priest, and the priest would offer prayers and offer uh, sacrifices and all these things. Um, but his job was also to bring a clean source of water to the family. So again, they understood the connection between their source of water and their source of illness. Um, so I know I've been talking, uh, I've been mentioning sacrifice a lot. This is how I started, um, and I've just been mentioning here, at, here and there. Um, but why did the Aztecs actually perform human sacrifice? So the image in the middle is the Aztec sunstone. Uh, some of you may know this image as the Aztec calendar. Uh, it's not actually a calendar. What it is, is the sacrificial stone. So this is where the victims were placed uh, before they would rip their heart out with an obsidian blade. And what the stone is depicting, uh, it's, it's actually telling the story of the five cycles of humanity. So the Aztecs believed that there had been generations of humans before us, exactly four different generations, and they had all been wiped out for one reason or another. The gods got tired of them, they weren't good enough, and they just whoop, uh, killed them off. Uh, they'd been killed off by water, they'd been killed off by hurricanes, uh, and so the Aztecs were living in the fifth sun, the fifth cycle. And they thought that the way the fifth cycle was going to end is that at the end of the year, um, the sun would stop rising, they would live in eternal darkness, and they would slowly die of starvation. So what they figured out is that if they could prevent this from happening, they could live longer. Um, and how they thought that the best way to go about this would be to offer their own sun uh, to the gods, their heart, their sun, um, so that the gods would be pleased and continue to let the sun rise. And so to the right of the image is Tezcatlipoca. He is the god who was thought to be the destructor. He would be the one to say that the sun would not rise. Uh, and to the right is, uh, to the left, 
is Quetzalcoatl. He's a feathered serpent, and he was actually the creator of humans. He's the one who brought the fifth cycle to life. And so I also said that the Aztecs were latecomers to the valley, and there had been at least a thousand years of people settling down, uh, building villages, having agriculture, building small ruins. Uh, so the Aztecs could see that. Um, they came to this place and saw skeletons of people that, did not, that no longer existed. Uh, they saw villages of people that no longer existed and was completely different from the villages of any of their contemporaries that were still alive in the valley. Um, there were also skeletons even older from nomadic people that had been wandering the continent for thousands of years. And so the Aztecs just naturally assumed these were people that were living before me and they must have displeased the gods and that's why they were killed. So they had some evidence um, to make this observation that we were living in the fifth sun and um, the gods could potentially kill them. Um, the tragic irony of the Aztecs is that they met their end, not by the sun not rising, but by the Spanish coming and taking over, which is something that they could have never predicted. There was no way they would have known that. And so they found their end on August 13, 1521, now, this is the day that the Aztecs surrendered to the Spanish after a long protracted battle. So this story, I can drive a lot of parallels uh, from this story to a lot of things in life. Um, a lot of, when I was mentioning to people that this was something that would, I was interested in talking about, um, a lot of people actually mentioned the anti-vaccine movement as an example. I don't know if you guys, do you guys want me to read the comic? Um, it's like, doctor, don't vaccines contain chicken embryos, embalming fluid, spermicides, cancer-causing agents, gelatin from butchered animals, mercury, antibiotics, and antifreeze? And the doctor's like, I don't know. We just get paid to inject as many people as we can. <laughs> the little baby, someone please call poison control. Um, so this, is, this is obviously a cartoon coming from the anti-vaccine side, saying that the doctors don't really know what they're doing. Uh, but what this highlights for me um, is what the mother's fears are. So the mother is afraid of things that she actually can see. She has seen autism in her life. Uh, she has seen probably many more reactions to vaccines from fever to seizure to Guillain-Barre. And she's never seen polio. She's never seen measles. She's never seen rubella. Um, so it's, she's actually reacting to, to a fear that is, in a way, more real um, than, um, than the diseases that we're trying to fight. And so I'm not saying that thinking about this makes my conversation, you know, makes me convince people <laughs> to vaccinate their children, but it does help me kind of calm myself and realize that they're actually, where they're coming from is actually a good place and they're actually trying to protect their children um, and not hurt them. But we can always flip the coin and look at ourselves. So this is a swa peanut man. He's like, oh, you're both allergic? I get that a lot. I'm trying to pick up the ladies. Um, so this is an example that is fairly recent, and so for a fair number of years, we were recommending to parents that they not introduce peanuts to children's diets, um, because it sort of made sense that we had some evidence to believe that the sooner uh, we introduce peanuts, the sooner we would make them allergic, and we were trying to prevent that. Um, when actually the evidence came around, it turned out, and it turned out that it was exactly the opposite. The later we introduce peanuts, the more likely we are to make them allergic. And this many years of recommendation, it's likely that we actually caused some damage. Um, so I guess to conclude my talk, I just want to say that for me, the Aztecs are really just a lesson in humility about the perspective um, of humans, what it's like to be human and what it's like to have. We think that we have evidence to make rational conclusions, um, but we 
really don't. And these are my reference and things. Um, interesting to think about how their health was really all about wounds and broken bones. And um, I'm wondering how much of the the warring and the building and things like that did they make their slaves do? Because you talked about them being the source for sacrifice. And I'm wondering how much of the actual building and, and hard, hard labor was done by the slaves versus the... So they had prisoners of war, but they didn't really have slaves. Um, they didn't have a concept of slavery. So it's pretty much the working class people who did it. Did, did um, the Aztecs have doctors? So they did. They didn't have um, a one person that was considered a doctor, um, but they had, um, uh, so they had the priest that was their main doctor. <laughs> they had midwives. Uh, they had people who mostly went with them to battle. So there was someone there in the battlefield helping out with whatever they could. Uh, there were the, the botanists, the people who knew more about the plants. Uh, there were all sorts of people that would be considered doctors today. Do you have any idea if, if we ever get Mexican patients, which around here you know, isn't so likely, um, how many of the folk remedies they use today are related to the, what the Aztecs used? Well, actually, a ton of them. <laughs> many of them survived through uh, the conquest and survived through um, the Spanish Empire and a lot, many of the plants that I showed are still used today and many of them haven't been tested so we don't actually know if they have any properties but they, people still like them. Shani suggested the education was um, separated by gender, you know, was it um, predominantly a patriarchy or a matriarchy? No, it was a patriarchy, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Very lightning, and I believe our photographer might be waiting for us up on the floor and give people a chance to uh, move up there. You know, the main atrium for our faculty and staff pictures, please. Make sure we get some feedback for our speakers and uh, be able to get a few. Yeah, I guess.